0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Healing of Legion by Brother Matt Norton. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Video. Org. Legion was healed the day after one of the busiest days in Christ's ministry. It is a sin that caused storms in our lives and Jesus healed the storms in many people's lives that day. He also stopped the storm when he was in the boat with peace. Be still. It was that same peace he brought to the deranged Legion. Christ can heal all the storms in our lives and all the demons.
1: What I want to have a look with you uh, this evening, then, uh, brothers and sisters, is this, this really interesting episode where Christ heals legion. It's, a, it's an interesting little section. In fact, I just want to start by asking a question. If I asked you, outside of the crucifixion day, outside of the crucifixion day, which is the biggest day where the most... Uh, episodes and situations and experiences are recorded of the Lord's ministry. Which day is that? Now, just obviously answer it in your, in your mind. There, you would, you might say, Legion. Well, you're wrong. It's actually the day before. It's the day that leads up. To the healing of Legion, and if you took a forty-eight-hour period, it's quite a lot too, because it ends with him coming back across the the uh, Sea of Galilee and healing Jairus's daughter, answering all these questions about um, John the Baptist, and it's it's just so frenetic and busy, really, really crazy. And Mark starts it off thematically. If you just would like to turn there in Mark chapter. Uh, 3, Mark starts it off in verse 13 with the Lord all night on a mountain praying to God about appointing the 12. Out of all these disciples, he needs to get 12 who will be with him. And he's out there all night long. Now, as I said, it's thematic. It's not actually chronological, but Mark puts that little episode uh, at the beginning of this really crazy day in the Lord's ministry where he just does so many things and he wants to uh, impress upon at least everybody, not just his disciples, but surely his apostles as well, who he's already chosen, the need for discipleship, discipline, the need for commitment and dedication, the need to continue single-mindedness. And if you want to save people, the need to be able without any any thought of your own to be able to keep reaching out and stretching out your hands all the day. And we'll have a look at uh, that quote a little bit later. What I want to show you just to start with is uh, we're just here in the Lord's ministry. So we're between the second and the uh, third Passover. I can just get my, there it is. Second and the third Passover where this one day is recorded and it's, Easy actually to follow, although when you first study it, and we studied this little section, it took us around about 12 months in our Life of Christ class when we were looking at it, and we didn't realise that all these things were on the same day, like his family trying to restrain him, talking about the unforgivable sin, the sign of Jonah, all these parables, parable after parable after parable, interactions and healings, all occurred on the same day. But it's not too hard, and I can obviously leave Uh, these slides with you, to follow these transitional phrases, these connective words, which help us to see through the Gospels, which, you know, are often difficult to follow when you're trying to match them up and get a harmony. We're not always, it's not always easy for us to get the exact chronological events. And by no means am I going to tell you tonight that uh, the events of that particular day are easy chronologically to follow. They're not. It's difficult. Which parables did he say when and where? When was he in the house? What time was it? did he leave? When did he go back out to the sea? When did he come back to the house again? When did his brethren, brothers and sisters and uh, his uh, mother come to him in the house? But at least, even if we can't get the exact record of that day, we know all of these events did happen on this day, the same day, on that day. And we're going to see how it links in Isaiah 65 with God himself because the son is taking after his father when all the day on this one episode shows us that he is stretching out his hand to save people, to show people a better way. And uh, it's such an interesting little section. So we'll just go through the... This, uh, this day, first of all, with you, because I just want to impress upon you before we get to the healing of legion, it leads up to this. This was, as we're trying to say, it's a crazy day. So in Mark chapter three, we won't maybe turn up all the quotes, but you can at least uh, see them there. In Mark three, I'm just trying to organise my screen here because there's bits and pieces all over it. There we go. In Mark 3 says he goes home. Now, that home is not Nazareth. That home is the Capernaum home. Which home is it? Which house? I'm going to say maybe it's Peter's house, and it's a suggestion. And if it's not Peter's house, what's well, it's another house, but it's in Capernaum. And he's, he's healing, he's teaching, he's answering questions. And the day begins with the phrase there. Actually, we are in Mark chapter 3. It says in verse 20 that then he went home, And the crowd gathered again so that they couldn't even eat. Now, the thing is about a phrase that says that a person can't eat says to me straight away that they actually wanted to eat, that he was hungry and that he needed to eat, but he didn't get to eat. And it was at this time where he hasn't even got a moment to stop and rest and have just a break to eat that his family decide in the next verse, they say his family heard of it, that he's not looking after himself, so they intend to go out to actually seize him because they're saying he's out of his mind. And his family now accusing him, He he must be mentally unhinged and he's out of his mind and we've got to go and save him. Besides the fact that they didn't believe in him and besides the fact that they were highly embarrassed of his behaviour and the way he taught and uh, upbraided the scribes and Pharisees, the way that he, his reputation was not keeping in line with what they wanted as a family. And it was at this time, when you look at the other Gospels, where Matthew says he heals a blind and a mute man. He's, uh, he's accosted by the scribes, who come down specifically, I come up specifically from Jerusalem to, to, uh, to catch him in his words. And they also accuse him of madness. And they say, Well, you're working for Beelzebub. And Christ says, It's ridiculous, as if I'd be working for Beelzebub because a kingdom which is set against itself I can't stand. Why would I be sending out and, and healing? people who are, you know, uh, um, possessed by my own minions. And so he makes, uh, he ridicules them for, for that little accusation. And then he warns them of the unforgivable sin because they can see that he's a righteous man. They know he's speaking the truth. They can see and are experiencing his miracles. They know he's been sent from God and they still accuse him of working for Satan, working for Beelzebub, And here it is, brothers and sisters, the unforgivable sin is nothing mysterious. It's just a person who is so stubborn and proud that they will not acknowledge God's work in their life. They will not say sorry. And as far as God's concerned, they're unreachable and they can't be forgiven. Because the first principle for God is simply you need to acknowledge our sins. And Christ warns them they're at risk of never being forgiven. He calls them, uh, you know, a tree that doesn't produce fruit and he calls them a brood of vipers and it, it sets in motion this entire day, which really for the Lord must have been an incredible strain as well as he distances himself not only from the ruling class and tries to get the uh, crowds to understand what he's about. He's also under the strain of having to be uh now distance from his own family and that must have been an incredible strain for the Lord and nobody could accuse him later when he says you know if you don't leave your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters you can't follow me because nobody could say to him well you haven't done it he did that very thing he went ahead of them and in spite of them and despite the fact that they didn't want him to preach in this way he still was absolutely resolute and single-minded to us serve his his father. So it's time when he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees that they request a sign and, you know, he, he talks about Jonah and how that's the only sign that would be offered. He, he gives the parable of the unclean spirit. And then it tells us in Matthew that while he is speaking on the same day, while he's saying these things, that's when his family arrived with Mary, with his mother. And the interesting is, they, they stand outside. Now, we've probably looked at that thing before, inside the house and outside the house. Like, they can't even get into the house. And the message comes from outside. Somebody, some man gets the message, who are you? Oh, I'm the Lord's mother. His brethren and his sisters are here. And the message goes back all the way into the house to the Lord. And you almost can't believe it. Every time I look at this little section of the Lord, you almost can't believe that he actually said what he said. He didn't get up. He didn't go and greet his mother. He distanced himself from them. And he it says he actually stretched out his hand. He said, These here who are listening to me, they're my brothers and my sisters. The ones who are ruminating and thinking and listening and taking in and absorbing my message, they are my brothers and sisters. And you can't believe he did it, but this is my family here. And his real family, his literal family, they were outside. And they weren't listening. So during this talk and during this time of healing, it says that he leaves for the Sea of Galilee. And it says in uh, Matthew, it says that same day. And we know that, you know, the crowd around him at the uh, shores of Galilee are, are pushing him. He's probably standing ankle deep in water. And, you know, if not for safety reasons, at least for practical purposes, he goes and stands in a boat. So he gets in a boat, pushes out a little bit, and he stands there and uses that as the platform to speak to the people. And he gives them all these parables, probably all the parables in this section are given to the people, as we know later, some of them when he was alone back in the house again. On that same day, he uh, explains them in more detail, the parable of the sower, the biggest, greatest parable of all, parable of the tares, the good seed, the mustard seed and the leaven. The parable the treasure in the field, which a man finds, sells all that he has to to come and get it. The uh, merchant man and the pearl, the fishing net, the parable the old new treasures, parable after parable after parable. And, And then the little phrases, he leaves the crowds, he goes back into the house. We're not sure exactly when it happens, how it happens. But he gets alone and people are standing there, even at the Sea of Galilee, and probably if somebody elbows the other person says, how come he's telling so many stories? And people notice it, story after story after story, and even the disciples notice it. Why are you telling so many stories? And the Lord tells, tells them, actually, just turn the page there, Mark 4, look at what it says. It's the only other time this word is used in this little section for this day. It says, when he was alone, in verse 10 of Mark 4, Those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. Lord, why are you talking so many parables? And he says to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, it's the same word as where his family stood outside the house, who represented all those who at this stage didn't believe in him, had difficulty with him, couldn't see where the Lord was going, weren't sure if they were ready to go along beside him. The parables are for those outside. You need to talk. You need to listen to the Lord. You need to consider the parables. You need to go over them and over them and over them again if you want to be a disciple. And so the Lord, he reaches out to his disciples here and explains the parables in greater depth. And he talks about a lamp under a basket. And this is the day, brothers and sisters, all these things are happening. When it finishes, he has that scribe and the disciple address him just before he gets into the boat to leave because the crowd is there again when he leaves to go back to the Sea of Galilee, he leaves the house again, and the disciple says, I will follow you anywhere. And the Lord probably thinking about this whole day, thinking, follow me anywhere? Are you serious? Have you seen what type of day I've had? And I'm not saying this is what every single day in his ministry is life, but it, it crystallises for us just how dedicated he was because he says to them, do you know what? I haven't even got a place to lay my head. And a lot of expositors say, oh, isn't that sad? The Lord was so poor he didn't have a house. That's garbage. He did have a house. He's been at the house all day. What it means is if you want to serve me and follow me, you're going to get no rest. Remember we started the day? We haven't even eaten today. That's how hard it is. No rest, no room, no sleep, no food for the Lord. He's absolutely exhausted. And this is the day that ends with them taking him even as he was and putting him in the boat. And people some uh, expositions say, see, he was already on the boat unprepared and they took him even as he was without being able to get off the boat, prepare, come back and go sail. It's not true because Matthew says at the end of the day he gets back into the boat. So he's been at home, he went out to preach, he comes back, he explains things to his disciples, tells more parables, he goes back out again, he's accosted again by crowds, everybody wanting a piece of him. And you can just understand, at the end of the day, he was absolutely exhausted, just totally exhausted, that he's, as we know, in sleep during a storm which threatened the lives or scared those who were sea hardy and spent all their time on, uh, on the sea itself. So just take that picture think about the Lord in that moment, that one day, this biggest day in the Lord's ministry, how tired and exhausted he was. And, like, all of us have felt tired before. There's no doubt about that. I remember there was one one time when I was exhausted, Jody and I, we, we got home. It was from a trip away, and we were severely jet-lagged, and mum had picked us up from the airport and brought us back to her house and, of course, you know, spend time with the family. So we're sitting there talking to them and trying to make conversation and be really enthusiastic that we had missed them and really wanted to see them again. And we were just so tired. We finally got dropped off home. It was about three in the afternoon. I remember Jodie went straight to the room and I think she just fell straight to sleep. And I sat on the, the lounge and all the kids were there. I must've had my eyes rolling back in my head because I remember them you know, trying to bring me some food and, and putting blankets over me and, and trying to look after me. That was the last thing I remember. And we had one of those houses back then that had a, sort of an open plan. Live, uh, area so you could see from you know the front area through the lounge room right back into the kitchen and I must have dozed at about three and I didn't hear a single thing after that and I woke up the next morning around about 8 8 30 and I looked at the panorama of the house and the whole place was totally and utterly destroyed The kids had been fighting and throwing things around, cooking popcorn, microwave door was open, the fridge was open. The place was just a mess. Obviously, it was the greatest storm inside, which probably threatened our lives, and uh, I'd slept through it. Both of us had slept through it. So I understand you get that exhausted, but this is the Lord who does not care for himself, as I care for myself, and, and I'm selfish. He exhausts himself in attempting to save others and to do his very best to uh, to serve his uh, father. Now, there's just there's a couple of other things which I wanted you to to see in this large day, and you can now probably try and appreciate in just in a grasp, a mental grasp, how big this day was. When you look at another theme, it's the theme of crowds. The crowds are everywhere, and the storm. If we're speaking metaphorically, the storm is in these crowds, all of these crowds which are pushing and shoving and pressing and thronging the Lord. The crowd the crowd who uh, accosted him and wanted to be uh, healed and they wanted things answered and they wanted to be touched by the Lord and they wanted like the crowd of the scribes and Pharisees are trying to catch him out in his word. And it was a tumultuous, terrible roaring of the ocean of these, of this population. Touch me, do this, explain that. And the Lord's in that crowd all day. The disciples were the part of the crowd. There was the actual storm and Legion. itself. himself. There was the herdsmen, the people of the city, the people of the country, even when he gets back, Gyrus has a storm inside of him. All of these people in some way or another who are unhinged, needy, worried, anxious and fearful people, sin causes these storms in our life, brothers and sisters. All of us have these storms in our life. We're all in it. In it. And we, we can't see our way through it. And we fear and we think to ourselves, Lord, we're going to die. You can't get us through this. And if we want the storm stilled, obviously from Sunday school we've learnt this lesson. We want the storm of our life still, and we all do. We've got to spend time with the Lord. We've got to trust in him. And so another theme is this strong theme of madness, which is uh, analogous to uh, a storm as well because when you feel like you are unhinged and sin unhinges us. There's no doubt about that. It's very difficult to to see and to logically reason. And a lot of the Lord's uh, companions here at this time had either had demons or were by him healed. Some of the parables have featured demons and it's a really amazing this little section where his friends, probably his relatives, they accuse him of being mad. His mother even thinks he's now unhinged. The Pharisees tell the Lord that he's actually mad. The scribes say, you know, you're doing this because you're crazy. You're doing this out the power of Beelzebub. And even his disciples, the strong implication is when they're on the ship, they say to him, after this whole day, where the Lord's done nothing but care for everybody. They think they're going to die, and they, they say to the Lord, they accuse him, don't you even care that we could die? Like, are you mad? And it's just its a really, really difficult situation because the, all these people are forcing their issues upon the Lord, and when he finally goes to heal Legion, I sort of almost see it as his father giving a, like a nod to his son He's surrounded by all of these people in the storm, all these people who are unhinged by sin, who are suffering the madness and the demonic possession of sin, their own sins and the sins of others. And the Lord is in the middle of that storm. And he may have been even forgiven for questioning his own sanity. Will he be able to get through it? The father takes him out of there, takes him across to heal this man, Legion, and says, "Son, that is the state of humanity. I've sent you to a world that could be symbolised as that man, Legion. You are the only calm one. You are the only sane one. You are the only one who can think logically and 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 reason appropriately on my things. And you go and heal them. It's just—it's amazing that that's the episode where Legion is set against. And so." We're on the boat with the Lord now. We should actually just look at that section. It's in Matthew chapter um, 8, actually, because Matthew is a a little bit out of context. His gospel is not quite like Mark, which is very ordered and structured. But Matthew, right at the end of this day, when he sees the crowd in verse 18, and he gives orders to the disciples, we've got to get out of here. We've got to go to the other side, to Gentile territory, actually, he says, uh, a scribe comes up to him and says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, look, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. No relief at all. And another of these disciples says to him, Lord, let, just give me a bit of time. I'll go and bury my father. And the Lord, you can, you can understand it now after a day like he's had, this short and frank answer where he says, If you're going to follow me, you leave the dead and let the dead bury their own dead. Wow. And that says he gets back into the boat, and I think it's Matthew or Luke that says they take him even as he was. They basically lift him into the boat, back into the boat, and then the great storm and, of course, the incredible episode that the Lord is actually asleep. Now, when he stands up and... uh, listens to the disciples when they say, Lord, we're perishing. And he says to them, why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? And again, he seems a little bit short with them. And he's very tired and he rebukes the wind and the sea. And instantly it stops. And I believe they would have come across Galilee that night, the greatest of calms, something probably, you know, verging on miraculous, is the Lord leaves Capernaum, as you can see here. I hope you can see there. And he probably comes across into somewhere in this area. And I'm not entirely sure, but if you go to there these days, and we've been there before, um, everybody's happy to come and tell you that this is the place where, you know, the swine, the herd of swine, ran down the steep place into the sea. So the Lord's left Capernaum, and he's down on this uh, eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in an area of, of called Decapolis, the Ten Cities, which, by the way, links with the Book of Revelation, but we haven't got time to look at that this evening. It's very interesting. He gets down there, and it's probably the sun's coming up. It's dawn, and Matthew says that there's actually two legions two men who are crazy and math mark and luke only follow one of them maybe because only one was appreciative who knows or one actually wanted to go with the law we- but we don't know and it doesn't even matter of course the higher critics say oh well there's a great contradiction with the bible as if that is a contradiction which people wouldn't have worked out anyway there's probably a reason i don't know what it is but mark and luke follow just one of these men be that as it may, here's, here's the Lord. They've come out of this. The two men with legion, I'll just describe him now as one. Legion's come down onto the shore, obviously drawn down by this huge storm. And, um, you know, if he, if he is really crazy, maybe he was thinking to himself, oh, I'd love to be out on that. Or like a normal person would be thinking, thank goodness I'm not. But out of that storm, only one ship sails. One ship makes it through and the, probably the other ships didn't make it through that initially you've set off with the Lord. And you're coming with the disciples and you're with the Lord in this boat and you're coming to this shoreline You're thinking, where can we land? Where can we land? It'll be nice. And there's a guy down there, or two guys, got not a stitch of clothing on. They're crazy. They're probably swearing and fighting and uh, scratching and carrying on. And you're thinking, please don't land here. Please don't land here. Please don't land here. Please don't land here. And the Lord says, we're going to land here. And like one part of you thinks, I know, I know the Lord knows what he's talking about, but there's other three parts of me thinking, we're going to die. And what is the Lord doing? He goes, he lands there and straight away, Legion, well, Christ engages Legion and attempts to heal him. And Legion calls him the uh, son of God, which is utterly amazing. And immediately I've thought to myself, here's this man who in uh, if I could find a couple of verses for you, in Mark 5 and in Luke 8, we know he had houses, a house. We know he had friends, we know he had family. We know he once had a life. He was still actually looked after by people because people actually had the sense to try and protect him by chaining him up when he went through these episodes of, of madness and uh, hurt himself. But he was so uncontrollable that he wouldn't even allow them himself to be protected. He would he would break the chains, he would tear off into the night, live amongst the tombs as we've as we've read, cut himself and scream and cry. And it must have been a horrifying sight to land there if you were these uh apostles and this poor man legion, who probably, if you just have a look at this, this is I didn't even know this until you know, a couple of years ago now, I guess, that the Lord had already been up in this area. It's in Mark chapter. Oh, where is it? I could find it for you. Oh, Matthew chapter four. If you just have a look, quick look at Matthew chapter four, this is just before the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's gone through out all this area of Galilee, and He's teaching in their synagogues, and He's proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And in verse 24 of Ma, Matthew chapter 4, we read this. It says, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, which is exactly where he is now, and you think to yourself, when he such a, a, a huge ministry of healing, which included demons, how did how did uh, Legion slip through the cracks? Why wasn't he healed? Or the year before, brothers and sisters, was Legion sane? Was Legion okay? Was Legion still in, in his right mind? Was Legion? They're listening. Did Legion in chapter 5 of Matthew go with the crowds that he saw, go up to the mountain and sit down with the Lord and listen to the Lord, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the meek and listen to the wonderful teaching of the Lord? Did he have his heart drawn to the Lord by those things? And it makes you wonder because we know when he is healed, Legion, what? Do the uh, people of the city and country find when they come out to see it, they find the Lord and Legion sitting together again? Maybe maybe Legion had heard this preaching. Maybe he knew he was the son of God. didn't come from uh, from nowhere. And he calls him the son of God. And he's, he's, so, he's so stressed about being tormented. And although we don't know exactly how he got like this, there are, of course, uh, some some uh, theories about the origins of legions madness. And you've, you've, you've probably heard it before. And I'll just relate it to now legion could have had, and it makes sense to could have had a disease which can force people to be almost insane. That's linked to the uh, swine, to the pigs itself. And there's two diseases which can be passed on by pigs, especially uncooked pig meat. And those diseases, if I can pronounce them correctly, are Trichinella and sister psychosis. You can look those up. I've no idea what they are, except when you go through the expositions of this episode, they all refer to it. And then you go and find out that these are, in fact, diseases, where both have, from pig's flesh, uncooked pig's flesh, sounds disgusting. Uh, forms of larvae that can lodge, not just in the pig's flesh, but be transferred to humans, and it can penetrate the intestinal walls and certain organs and tissues, including the brain, and it causes a lot of swelling, and it's extremely painful, and it can drive somebody absolutely insane. And I've heard people say before, you know, especially this new age, who worship, you know, they've they've changed the creation. God for the creation. They worship the creation and the climate. People say Christ is uh, obviously uh, not a godly man because he killed 2,000 pigs. But we all understand that if Legion's disease is linked to the pigs, which it probably was, those animals like swine flu and bird flu needed quarantining and uh, putting down. And uh, it sort of gives a credence to that idea. So I'm not totally sure, but it it seems that these episodic spasms that Legion was now, uh, you know, gripped by obviously had something to do with pigs. And thankfully as well, because we're going to talk about pig food in just a moment, thankfully we don't live under the law and mercifully we can still have bacon for breakfast and not going to stop me from eating bacon. However... What we want to look at now is this little episode of Legion's healing, just, just briefly, because we've, we've led up to it and thought, talked about the madness and, and so forth. And all the records say, just as the Lord goes to heal this man, and he's gentle, just as the Lord goes to heal this man, Legion did not want to be healed simply and He beseeches the Lord to send the disease, the demons, into the swine. Now, there's one thing about this, which I don't understand it, but the Lord doesn't sit us down ever in his gospels and just say, Listen, there's no such thing as demons. Once you're dead, you're dead. You're in the ground. There's no disembodied, you know, souls. When I send this, demon into those uh swine it's just the illness the lord doesn't do that and it does frustrate me i have to say and it probably has frustrated you in your attempt to uh to preach to other people and to explain to them what goes on in the gospels but be that as it may we're just going to uh ignore it all the records focus on and say there was a herd of pigs about two thousand of them and they were feeding now This is not a picture of a young people's um, camp. This is a picture of pigs feeding. So I want you to understand what feeding pigs look like. hope the sound comes through. You
0: can
1: give me a thumbs up if the uh, sound does come through. Look at that. I You can hardly watch it, and you'd be forgiven for thinking, obviously, that's obviously uh, dinner at the Norton's household. I I get that. It's disgusting. Pigs. And that makes you think, obviously, the idea of pigs. Like, for for a Jew, you couldn't get anything that would upset the Jewish sensitivity more than a pig. Swine. Because of the way God separated clean animals and unclean animals, which we need to have a look at to understand this. Clean animals and unclean animals were separated for a reason. And let's just have a look because the f- pigs were feeding. And as I said before, you're not going to get me off bacon. It's too nice. But if you just have a look down at uh, the beginning of our Bibles in Leviticus 20, we're actually told why God separates animals and the uh, what the Jews were allowed to eat and not eat. And it's not... It seems so arbitrary, but there's a very clear and very uh, uh, strong moral lesson behind it, and God wants us to understand that. So it's in Leviticus chapter twenty, where He starts off with all the sins in chapter twenty, all the just the most terrible sins from the culture of the pagans that lived in the land of Israel, and then in verse twenty-two He says, "You." shall therefore keep all my statutes and my rules, and you shall do them. Verse 23, um, you you shall not walk in the customs of the nations because I'm driving them out. The land is going to vomit them out. But I said to you, you shall inherit the land, flowing with milk and honey. And then it says at the end of uh, verse 24, I am Yahweh your God who has separated you from these peoples. You shall therefore... Because I've separated you from the peoples, that's the reason I'm going to separate clean beast from the unclean, unclean bird from the clean. So it's there to teach us a lesson. It's not because there's anything particularly wrong with um, you know, kangaroo meat or horse meat or even bacon. You can eat it today. We're not under the law. But God did it for the specific purpose to teach them. You are separated and you're separated for this reason. I want you to walk that way, not in the ways of their culture. I want you to be different from them. I don't want you to do what they do. I don't want you to say what they say. I don't want you to act like they act. I don't want you to think like they think. I want you to be separate. And every single day you have a meal, that's going to, that awareness is going to be brought to you. And so we have the uh, we know what the, the criteria for the clean and unclean animals obviously are. We learnt these from... Um, our childhood, first of all, has to part the hoof and it's got a cloven hoof, a cloven foot rather. And, of course, what it represents. It represents somebody that's sure footed and stable spiritually. And you think, oh, is that me? Well, I'm trying to be. Are you trying to be, brothers and sisters? It doesn't trip up or depart from the path of Christ and they're able to negotiate the terrain between good and evil. That's what... Uh, a cloven foot represents. And you think, oh, this is just Christadelphian um, interpretation. It's not. That's a Jewish interpretation. The Jews understood that. They knew what God had separated the animals for. You can only eat an animal who has got a cloven foot. And that chews the cud, a ruminant. Remember we were talking about just before? This is someone who goes over and over the word of God. See how the Lord just at this day decided I'm going to speak in parables. I want people to go over it. You can't walk with me unless you listen to these parables and think about these parables and bring them up again and consider them and talk about them, and go over them and meditate and ruminate on them. It's the only way to understand the Lord's teaching. That's the criteria for a clean animal. And so they're separated like that, clean and and unclean. And every time a little Jewish child would, would, you know, get hungry and say, oh, mum, so hungry. Can I have a sandwich? Mum would say, yes, yes, we can have a sandwich. What would you like on it? And the little child would be sneaky and say, oh, can I have some horse? I'd like a horse sandwich. Not that I've ever had one. But mum would say, well, does it fit the criteria, son? Is it a clean animal? Well, does it chew the cud? No, it doesn't. We can't have it. And then the child might say, looking around, because, you know, they all want to do what the Gentiles want to do. We all are terribly fascinated by what their lives hold out there. And the child goes, what about one of those up there? Mum goes, what's that? It's a rock badger. Can I have a rock badger burger, please, Mum? Mum says, right, oh, does it fit the criteria? The rock badger burger. And the son says, well, yeah, it's chewing the cud. Mum, it's chewing the cud. It must be clean. Mum says, but hold on. Has it got a parted hoof? The son looks down and says, no, it doesn't. It doesn't have a parted hoof. So he can't eat it. It's not a clean animal. There's many animals, aren't there, that that chew the cud but have hooves that don't part. There's many animals that... And that's all of us in some way. All of us like try to go over the word of God, but we struggle with the walk. But there's only one animal which has the cloven hoof, but just gulps its food, like I just showed you. And that's the pig. That's the swine. This is the, uh, this is the, the worst sort of these animals. This is the one who, as we said, to the Jews is the most disgusting. It's a symbol of hypocrisy. This is a this is a little little piggy who looks kosher and puts out his little tiny uh, cloven hoofs like that, like he walks the right way. He looks like he does the right things. He's got a spiritual facade, but inside he's all rotten. You know what the Jews call the pig? They call the pig a walking privy, a walking toilet. Sticks out its hooves as if to say, I'm clean. And brothers and sisters, that's me. So often, I'd rather rather you think I'm better than what I am. A little bit pig-like, God hates it. It's disgusting. It's hypocrisy. And that's the reason why God separated the unclean from the clean, he wanted Israel to learn it. He wanted them to understand, you've got to be different. The only way you can be different is by thinking about my words and trying to put them into practice. Now, I'd like you just to have a look at Isaiah 65, please, because Isaiah 65 have all these ideas that we've been discussing uh, in this chapter. It's actually quite incredible. So the pig is so disgusting. Look at Isaiah 65, because if if this wasn't written Uh, intentionally for the day that legion came along. I I just wouldn't believe it. This is amazing. Or at least legion in the episode with the Lord could look back at Isaiah 65 and say, this is what my people are like. Because God was ready in verse one to be sought for those who do not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. They're the Gentiles. God's ready to send his son up to Decapolis to preach up there, to hold out his hand all the day, like he did the day before he met Legion. And he said, here I am, here I am. He's calling to a nation that was not called by my name. Will they listen? Yes, they will. Because what had happened, verse 2, he had already spread out his hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, followed their own devices, people who provoked him continually, sacrificing in gardens, making brick uh, offerings on bricks, sitting in tombs like legion, spending the night in secret places like legion, eating pig's flesh, broth of taint. It's, like, it's so disgusting. His own people were living like Gentiles, pretending to be kosher. And it's, it's such a difficult thing. That, and we know what it's like. You do one good thing for God. And like Second 2 Peter 2 verse 22 says, you feel so good about that. It's justified now. You're like a pig. I'm like a pig and I return to all the mud. Go and do sin again. That's what the pigs do. And you know the uh, Matthew 7 quote where Christ says, you know, you shouldn't cast your pearls before swine. And I'll, I heard it. Many times, actually, people say, oh, yes, well, you've got to be discriminating when you preach to people. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you because the word in Matthew 7 there, he's talking about hypocrites. And casting your pearls before swine has got nothing to do with preaching, not a thing. I'll tell you what casting your pearls before swine is. So there was a man that had two sons, and one of his sons wanted all his money before he had died, and he wanted his inheritance. And he took off as soon as he got his inheritance. He took off, and he spent. and He knew better. He spent all he had in reckless living, to the point where, during the famine, he was reduced to eating with pigs. And there was a there was a symmetry and a uh, a connection, an association between him, that little Jew who had left his father's house and become like a pig. That's casting your pearls before swine. It's taking your holy life and your holy things and treating them with hypocrisy and with disregard and throwing it out the window. That's what it means to uh, cast your pearls before swine. And that's what the pig represents. And there's Legion. Uh, There's Legion desperate for healing. And the Lord accepting his request and sending the pig now, sorry, the demons into the pigs, the whole herd of swine, just gnawing and snorting and snarling and gulping, greedy pigs. That's sin. That's hypocrisy, brothers. That's what we look like to God when we're hypocrites. Christ sends the demons out into them and they run headlong down and they all drown, which again is a miracle because I don't know if you know this, but I ask you the question, can pigs swim? Yes, they can. It's on YouTube. You can look it up. They can swim. They're, pra- they're barrels anyway. They're little trotters that go, like this. They don't, I'm not saying they're good swimmers, but they can swim. And for 2000 of them to drown was a miracle. And so the calm water was completely disrupted by that storm of swine. And for a moment, there's a little microcosm on the surface of the water is this tumult and a storm rages there like the night before, as the old man dies and God says, basically, peace be still and it's gone. And then the miraculous calm and the miracle of the uh, stillness of the water would have returned and Legion then is in his right mind. And it's just, it's an amazing miracle. And we know what it means. we're, We're told like the Lord himself, if he was questioning his own sanity, could see what his job was in stark relief now. I've got to save humanity from themselves, save them from the, uh, the sinister hypocrisy, the demoniac sin. And once we are saved and we come to the Lord, because there's no other way to still the storm, to put our brains that are unhinged by sin back on course again and to give ourselves every chance of living a, um, a quiet and a stable life in our right mind. Now, we know the rest of the story. All the uh, the herdsmen were scared out of their wits. They went and got everybody out of the city and out of the countryside. They all came to the Lord, and they saw, it's emphasised, they saw Legion sitting there in his right mind with the Lord, like perhaps he may have been in Matthew chapter 4 and 5, listening to the Lord 12 months uh, before. He's got his right mind, and he's desperate, absolutely desperate to go with the Lord again. And... Again, you think how harsh the Lord is. The Lord says, no, you you can't come with me. I'm not going to let you go with me. And uh, and the legion's desperate. But the Lord says to him, he says, you've got to go back to your own house. You've got to go back to your own city. You've got to go back to your own family. I want you to tell everybody what's happened to you. And you know what? It wasn't too long later that the Lord comes back, and I think it's in Mark chapter 7. We won't go there. But in Mark 7, he comes back. He returns to this area of Decapolis. And do you know, 4,000 people come out to hear him. 4,000. Surely, Legion could be credited for some of that. Surely, this man who is so happy now with his, in his right-minded and enthusiastic and energetic to, uh, to be a disciple to do what the Lord had been doing the day before, to stretch out his arms to his friends and family. And you've got to feel for his friends and family. Imagine if Lesion, who's now healed, and you didn't know he'd been healed, was starting to run at you and he's got a big smile on his face. You think, I know that smile. That's the smile of a crazy man. And he's like, no, no, I've been healed. And you're thinking, yeah, sure. It'd be like Saul of Tarsus at first. People would be scared of him. But then that would make the, the miracle even more underlined and um, emphasised because look at him now. He's preaching Jesus. Look how kind he is. All his wounds are starting to heal. His hair's cut. He's wearing clothes. You want to know about that story. Well, that story, brothers and sisters, is the story for all of us in our life when sin unhinges our mind and uh, we need to get back spend some time with Christ if we want to sit in our right mind and be restored and be reconciled uh, to him and Christ can heal all the storms of our life and he can heal all our demons we too must try to take up the, uh, the work of the Lord and to stretch forth our hands every day all the day and bring people to our Lord so we'll leave it there